Hello! Welcome to episode two of, what was the name of it again? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the least boring uh, personal injury podcast on the internet. There we go. Yeah. All right, did that without notes. <laughs> I guess we, it's still a working title, but... Well, then it. it is working because we'll we got a lot <laughs> of great working. we got a lot of great feedback on the first one. I was I was pleasantly I'm not surprised, but I was you know very happy. A lot of people seem to really enjoy it, and more importantly, a lot of people say they they really got something out of it. Yeah, yeah. So they like listening to us. Well, I I think we I think we did a good job. I think we uh, a lot of people really liked the whole emphasis we put on memorializing. Um, and if, for those of you who are new to the show. Uh, last episode, we Natalie and I spent time talking about what to do if you're in a car wreck, an auto accident, you know, a car accident, etc. And we really tried to walk you through step by step in granular detail. And a lot of people really like came to me and said, you know, I listened to that and I, I didn't think about how you got you have to memorialize stuff early or the insurance company won't believe you later. So that's I thought a good takeaway from that is if you. You can't you can't sit on your rights, as they say. If you're not if you don't get something memorialized, and later on the insurance company might try to deny your claim. So that's right. That's right. So, and I did talk to somebody about how our podcast is going to be even bigger than a popular show on Netflix called Wednesday. Just wanted to give a shout out to that <laughs> one person. I like that joke. Um, so let's talk about uh, we've got our first guest. We do our first ever podcast who is uh you may have put to sleep a little bit she's with your taco already no. she's already asleep uh <laughs> on the uh, on the car wreck stuff so we have a much more interesting uh or you know just as equally i should say equally as exciting topic today is uh we're going to talk about dog bites which is uh appropriate that uh jess and i just added a new member of our family uh this little cutie fuzzball right here um and we thought this would be a good time as any to discuss the law on uh on dog bites and other animal type injuries. Because she's so vicious. Yeah. I don't think we have to worry about this one, but, but well, you never know. Little breeds are can be temperamental just as much as the big ones. You can't judge a book by its cover. That's you right. gotta watch out. And uh, so we thought we'd go the extra mile and bring in an expert. Get somebody from <laughs> that's the one perspective you never hear on the these is the dogs. So we got uh, we got true. got your new little new friend here to tell us all about uh, Dog bites. We might have to catch her later because I think she's uh. Is she asleep? She's gone to sleep. Oh yeah, no. Pass her over. Penny. Well, she is a cute dog. Look Say hello, Penny. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. We're not very formal around here. Just just speak up anytime you want, okay? <laughs> I just want to introduce you guys really fast. We didn't say your all's names, so again, this is the least boring attorney podcast on the internet, hosted by Doug Morey and Natalie Collier Smith. Um, this podcast covers everything related to automobile accidents, slip and falls, animal attacks, and wrongful death. Um, we're going to do this um, every at least once a month, um, if not even more than that, to help you guys uh, and educate you all on what to do uh, when you're hurt by, uh, due to someone else's negligence. So, again, we're going to talk about animal attacks today, so I'm going to let Doug and Nellie take it over. Thank you, Jess. Appreciate you being here and hosting for us. Um... Uh, you kind of got me on a tangent there. You're absolutely right. We have a lot of topics come up. I'm excited about. I mean, we're doing dog bites today, animal attacks, but uh, you know, Jay's coming up in the future. What are we talk about doing motorcycle wrecks, car, more on car wrecks, 
premises liability, slip and fall, automobile accident. Um, Maybe even injuries, the TBIs. The injuries, TBIs. You had a, speaking of which, you uh, give you a shout out. Uh, I liked uh, your blog post recently on uh, tetanus. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, a lot of people were asking about um, should they get a tetanus shot after a dog bite. So we wrote a blog um, educating you all on um, when when to, to do that. Um, and it's always a good idea to, you know, if you haven't had it in a certain amount of years, to go ahead and get it done just in case. Um, but always first thing when an animal attacks or an animal bites is to call Morgan Carter-Smith. Um, and they can advise you on what to do next. I like it. Yeah, and our, our blog is a good place to go just for resources in general. Just as a good do- job of, of keeping that updated with information, uh, you know, blog posts that, that we put together and just make sure it, it gets on there. So it's, a, you just, it's an easy click. You go to the website. There's a little tab that says blog, and we've got several on there, and we keep that sort of running. So there's always some good information on there. It's a helpful place to start. Um, but, yes, always give us a call as well, and we can give you even more information purely hypothetically let's assume i'm not very good with technology now i know we're gonna have to really stretch to you know hypothetically how do i get to the blog what do i do um you can type it in uh, maureen Clark smith blog in google and it will take you there but if you do go to the home page um, it's in the top under resources you hover over resources and you'll get to the blog uh, you also find the podcast there so uh, whenever we have podcasts, it automatically, organically goes onto the website immediately. So you can find all of the resources. We have white papers coming up. We've got, we're writing a, um, a white paper. Um, it's got six chapters on motorcycle accidents and what to do. So that's coming soon. So it's just a great um, uh, informative place to go when you're looking for information. And that's moriannecolliersmith.com or moriannecolliersmith.com? Mori. MoryCollierSmith.com. MoryCollierSmith.com. Yep. MoryCollierSmith.com. Perfect. I'm learning about this internet thing. <laughs> All right. So today we're going to talk about dog bites, animal injuries, uh, what to do. Um, this should be a pretty short podcast. I mean, if a dog bites you, then uh, the owner is at fault, right? I mean, that's. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much true. Obviously, we'll flesh out the details on that. There are some nuances uh, uh-huh. to that, but. It is one of the more, um, uh, more, not really beneficial, but one of the, the easier, maybe, um, areas of law in that we don't get to talk a lot about strict liability in a lot of different um, types of injury cases. Dog bites are really, and, and dog, we'll, we'll flesh out, it's not just dog bites, it also could be other injuries caused by an animal, but um, it's really one of the few times where the owner... Um, is strictly liable, um, which means they're responsible uh, for the damages that their dog causes, regardless of anything they've done. They could be the the most responsible, the most careful uh, dog owner in the world, but if their dog causes injury, they are held strictly liable. Right, and that's a good point. Strict liability, just kind of give you a Background, um, I'm, I don't have it in front of me. I'm, I think Weaver v. Ward was the case, first year torts, where the the law determined, it, interesting enough about a dog fight, about two dogs fighting, a guy picked up a stick to try to break him up, and he accidentally poked himself in the eye. And the court, in that context, at least rejected strict liability. What strict liability means, and now explain it perfectly, is just regardless of any kind of um, fault 
or, or any kind of blame, someone is strictly liable. Um, in certain types of uh, trucking transportation, if you have hazmat materials and the like, because they're so dangerous, the owners or, or drivers of those trucks assume strict liability for them. Um, if you own a dog in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, then you assume strict liability for it. That is to say, you know, we love dogs, we want you to have a dog, but by putting the onus on the owner to be responsible for the pet, it encourages that owner to make sure the dog doesn't bite anyone, which is, of course, the goal here. So you are strictly liable, and statute KRS, Kentucky Revised Statute 258.253, subsection 4, any owner whose dog is found to have caused damage to a person, livestock, or other property shall be responsible for that damage. As in, any owner whose dog is found to have caused damage to a person, livestock, or other property shall be responsible for that damage. So if you own a dog and the dog bites someone, you are responsible. Again, much like the driver of our hypothetical hazmat truck with dangerous chemicals, we need people to drive dangerous chemicals, but we also need them to be super responsible, so we put that burden on them. We love dogs. Everyone in this room owns a dog, but we need dog owners to be responsible, so we put that burden on them. Uh, now, the, there are two ways in which to bring about one of these dog bite uh, suits. One, as we discussed, is strict liability. That applies to owners. The other is negligence. Now, negligence is a term you're going to hear a lot on this podcast. It's more of a fault-based system. It's what most of tort deals with. Car wrecks, slip and falls, motorcycle accidents, um, per, uh, any kind of malpractice, you know, automobile accidents, etc. Those are negligence, meaning did someone owe someone a duty and if so, or an obligation of some sort? If so, did they breach or violate it? And did that breach cause any kind of damage to the person? And if so, what was it? The reason why we generally do things on a negligence or fault-based standard is we don't want to hold people responsible for injuries that, at the end of the day, really weren't their fault. And I'll give you an example. If you're driving your automobile and you've never before had a seizure in your life, no indication whatsoever that you are susceptible to seizures, and then while driving, you have a seizure and your car veers into someone. You are not, under law, negligent for that wreck under those very specific set of facts because you had no foreseeability. Negligence is usually about foreseeability. You had no foreseeability that you were going to have a seizure. You, in lay terms, you didn't do anything wrong. However, if you have a history of seizures then, you know, susceptible to certain, you know, medications and medical advice kind of beyond the purview of this podcast, you can't just get behind the wheel and assume, well, hope I get lucky today not to be glib about it, but that would be a situation where you would have had some foreseeability that you might have a seizure and thus might cause an automobile accident. So negligence is more of a fault-based standard. How foreseeable was this? You know, did you, did you do something you weren't supposed to do or did you fail to do something you were supposed to do? That's the broad picture of what negligence is. Penny, you agree? She's snoring. She is sound asleep. She's, yeah, she's out of, out of commission. Wow. 
<clears throat> yeah, so just to kind of put a nice little bow on that, so strict liability um, is what a dog owner is uh, is uh, governed by. Now we'll get into a minute how we define owner, and that has changed over the years. But so strict liability means doesn't matter if you did anything wrong, you're responsible for the damages. Versus negligence means okay, we as the plaintiff we have to prove that you uh, did something wrong, and you know you either did something you weren't supposed to do or you didn't do something that you were supposed to do. So uh, yeah, fault versus um, you know you're liable regardless of of fault. Um, and negligence, like we say, is Generally speaking, the, the law we're going to be discussing, whether we're talking about car accidents, automobile accidents, motorcycle accidents, truck accidents, uh, premises liability, slip and falls, wrongful death, and so forth. Negligence will cover most of those type of situations, um, really almost any kind of insurance claim, strict liability being an exception to that. Okay, let's talk about... Uh, what happens if it's outside the, you have to sue under negligence on a dog bite. Um, you're telling me that some people who don't necessarily quote unquote own a dog might be responsible or there's a, there's a debate or a contention about who owns a dog. That's right. Yes. So, um, and a lot of, mostly that comes in the context of a landlord, uh, tenant situation. So, if, so if you're a dog owner, um, and you, uh, you know, you have a visitor over to your house, let's say, and your dog bites your guest, that person would have a claim against you. And it would be the, the dog owner, assuming that the, the dog owner owns their home. Um, the homeowner's insurance is what is, would cover that type of damages. So the injured guest would be able to make a claim against the dog owner's homeowner's insurance policy for uh, their liability coverage, and we'll get into the damages later. But um, so if it's a if if the dog owner is also the homeowner, and the injury happened on the homeowner's premises, um, that's a fairly easy. That's one of the easier calls. You've got you've got strict liability against the dog owner, and you've got hopefully a homeowner's policy that that covers the damages. Uh, where it gets tricky is if we're dealing with a dog owner. Um, who is not the homeowner, but is in fact a tenant at, at a rental property. So there's a landlord and tenant situation. So then we get into the, the distinction the law makes between uh, the, the, the dog owner, who would be the tenant in the situation, versus the landlord of the property upon which the, or where the, uh, the injury occurred. Well, just by way of some background here in the year 2012, the Supreme Court in Kentucky decided a case called Benningfield where they, not to go into too much detail, but... Well, before that, so before, ahead, sure. real quick, I don't mean to interrupt, no, please. just to set, before 2012, the law, Kentucky law, there's a statute that said, basically equated the owner of the dog and the landlord. So landlords were considered the owner of the dog if they allowed the dog to be on the property. So that was pre twenty twenty, excuse me, twenty twelve, and then and then the well, and then in in Benningfield, which I won't spend too much time on because the legislature has changed aspects of it, but a decision was reached in regards to what responsibility, if any, a landlord has toward the victim of a dog bite, um, if the dog is in fact at a spot owned by the landlord or or close to it. 
Uh, and then, and this, this is just kind of a background as to how the law can change. The legislature did not like that decision, I guess, or the people that lobby on behalf of landlords didn't like it or both. So in 2017, they changed the law. So going forward, the in case you're KRS, Kentucky Revised Statute 258.095, subsection 5, defines owner, a dog owner. And owner, when applied to the proprietorship of a dog, includes A, every person having a right of property in the dog, in other words, who owns a dog, and B, every person who, one, keeps or harbors the dog, two, has the dog in his or her care, three, permits the dog to remain on or about premises owned and, underline that, and occupied by him or her, and four, or excuse me, or four, permits the dog to remain on or about premises leased and occupied by him or her. Now, the key change here is on B3, permits the dog to remain on or about premises owned and occupied. It used to say um, owned or occupied. They changed it to and. And this is obviously done to protect landlords because most landlords don't live with their tenants. So now a landlord who rents someone a house or an apartment, the landlord owns the premises and permits the dog to remain, but does not occupy that premises. So thus removing any kind of liability, strict liability at least, statutorily. Yeah, and it goes to, I'm sure we could go into a long political debate on uh, the importance of uh, representatives and legislatures because that is... Uh, a perfect example of how just one little, literally little word change in a statute can really Absolutely. have huge implications on really your rights as, as you know, an injured individual. Because before that, <clears throat> excuse me, before the law changed, you know, you essentially had two claims. And, and hopefully there's, uh, between the two people, meaning the two in this situation, a tenant and a landlord, somebody has insurance to cover that. Yes. Um, now, because the statute changed from a, the literally the only change is the word and to the word or, now it's a possibility that you can only, maybe there's only one person involved, usually the tenant in that situation, and you just got to kind of cross your fingers and hope that there's some sort of insurance, that the tenant had renter's insurance, which some do, some don't, um, and then that maybe you can have a, a negligence claim against the landlord, but... This is one of many reasons why it's a good thing to hire a lawyer, and we hope you hire more Collier Smith, but regardless, you hire a lawyer. And Natalie made a great point there about finding insurance. Um, it's very, very difficult for non-lawyers to do, and candidly, it's difficult for lawyers to do. Um, I, I used to know a guy, a lawyer who quipped, he, you know, he had a room full of million-dollar cases with $25,000 insurance policies. In other words, the generally speaking, you're only going to get as much money as there is insurance coverage on the case. There's exceptions, of course. But, you know, if there's insurance coverage, at the end of the day, that's who's going to be paying the the judgment or the settlement, if any. So, ergo, if there is no insurance coverage, well, then you, um, it would be a lot harder to collect. And one of the many things we do here is, you know, we have cases we try very hard to go out and find if anyone has any insurance coverage that would apply to make the our client the victim whole and that's important but uh but yeah that's absolutely right a lot of money and a lot of time got spent changing that word and 
you know, one little eraser and write a new word, and here we are. Okay. So that's strict liability. The idea that to be strictly liable, that would only include people who own the dog, have the dog in your care. In other words, if you're babysitting the dog, you would be you'd be an owner under the statute. Permitting the dog to remain on or about premises owned and occupied. In other words, if you have a friend, a significant other move in with you, uh, cohabitate. Um, you know, if you, you could own a person, yeah, in other words, you're allowing them to live in your house and you live there. Um, so that, that, that would cover somebody who has someone, you know, but you have to live in the premises, in other words. So, occupy. Well, you want to talk about negligence? Yeah, sure. Okay. Love so, it. Love it. So we have to, we can't just give up. Um, we then look to see if we can sue the landlord or any other party under a negligence theory. And right, they're no longer strictly liable. So that's not the end of the story necessarily. So then we go to see if, if it's possible that a landlord um, was negligent. So <clears throat> um, we, we would have to show, again, as the plaintiff, we always have the burden of proof, we have to show that the landlord uh, knew or should have known of the dog's dangerous propensity is what the law says. Is that, is that that one bite thing I always hear about? Uh, sort of. It's, it's really kind of sort of is, yeah, which is kind of unfortunate. But So we used to, I think the law, I don't even know when, years ago, kind of uh, uh, colloquially known as first bite free, meaning right. the first time your dog bites somebody, you essentially kind of get that one for free because you had no way of knowing that the dog would bite somebody or had a nature to be vicious or uh, aggressive and attack anybody. But after that first one, well, then now you're on notice that your dog has some dangerous, uh, dangerous characteristics or has a dangerous uh, propensity. Um, so then you're on the hook. Uh, that is no longer the case. However, so that, that, that first bite free um, theory is no, does no longer apply to owners when we're talking right. about the strict liability right. stuff that we talked about earlier. But it's still kind of carried over now into in the negligence world against the landlord because we've got to prove that the landlord knew or should have known of the dangerous uh, nature of the dog. And I was being glib with the bite. It doesn't have to literally be a bite. Nellie did a great job explaining. Yeah. You know, we the law made a policy decision that to not give owners a first bite free because dogs, and we all love dogs here, but dogs are animals and inherently dangerous. Um, thus, we want to put more of an onus on a dog owner, much like the driver of a hazardous you know, chemical truck, to be very responsible for any damage done by their dog, hence the strict liability. For a landlord, under a theory of negligence, you know, we... It, the first bite theory is, is not, it's, it's a cute name, but it's, it's not a very uh, accurate one. It doesn't have to literally be a bite. Yeah. Dangerous propensities can include aggressiveness, attacking people, chasing a mailman down the street, you know, uh, constantly being vicious toward other dogs, other animals, uh, people, etc. Now, these are all questions of fact for a jury, but it, in essence, dangerous propensity a bite would be a dangerous propensity, but there are non-bites that are also dangerous propensity. Right. Can I give you a scenario and see what you guys think? Please. So, 
Consultations are always free at Maury College, so go ahead. Penny's five pounds. She's very little, but she likes to get under your feet. So if we had a visitor and she tripped, you know, a visitor and the visitor broke, you know, a bone or something, is that the case as well? For I that's a great question. Um, if you have to sit and think about it for a second, that's a popular lawyer stall tactic. They always say great question. To be fair, I don't think that would fall under the umbrella of dog bite. But you would potentially be liable under a more traditional premises liability. In other words, dog bites and animal injuries are more akin to the animal behaving in some kind of dangerous way or some sort of hazardous way, uh, some sort of you know biting, scratching, attacking, etc. If you go to somebody's house and a dog trips you or gets underfoot, um, you may have a premises liability case against them. And we'll talk about premises liability and slip and fall in a later podcast. It's a good segue. But no, I don't think that would that would fall under the dog biter, dangerous animal uh, part of the law. Would you agree? I would. I would agree. Um, I would get to the same conclusion that you got to, but I think that you don't have, just have to be bitten. So I mean, if a right. dog jumps on you and, and knocks you down, or if a dog. Um, uh, that's the only explanation or example I can come up with, but um, the tripping on the feet maybe is a is a little more because um, that'd be essentially tripping over you know if you tripped over a rug, a, a rug or you know yeah. carpet or whatever. So um, yeah, I, I agree in the in the result of your analysis. Well, yeah. thank you, I yeah. appreciate it. And that, listen, these cases, um, some of these cases are not as cut and dry as others. I mean, this these right. are there are questions for juries and questions for. Judges and the law still try to sort this out. We talked earlier about 10 years ago, 11 years ago now, the Supreme Court case that changed the law, and then five years after that, statute that changed it further. So this is one of those areas where there's a lot of interesting hypotheticals. Um, but it is but it is true, and I want people to know that your, the law does still entitle, to you, uh, entitle you to compensation if you are injured and not just bitten by a yes, dog. So, that's you know, a dog runs out from a, a house... And knocks, uh, you're walking down the street, a dog runs out of the, uh, you know, is let out of the home, runs you down, jumps on you, knocks you over, you fall down, you b- break your arm or something like that. That is still within the purview of, of dog bite law. And you don't always have to be bitten or like, you know, blood drawn or some vicious attack. I mean, any sort of injury, um, the law still allows you to be compensated. For 100% yes. Yes. It's not just bites. So we were talking earlier now, I rudely interrupted you a few minutes ago, about um, negligence and, and uh, the whole idea that, I made a joke about the first bite rule, yeah. that the, for a landlord or, or anyone to be found liable under negligence theory, not just landlord, um, the first prong is that they must have known or should have known about the dangerous propensity of the dog. Right. Okay. Um, what else? Um, the The... Attack has to have occurred uh, within, um, well, on or on or about um, the property. Which actually, I think the law, the the case says um, uh, within the owner's or the landlord's uh, immediate control. So it has to occur essentially on or near. And again, there's there's a lot of cases on the nuance of exactly where the location of the attack occurred and whether or not that falls within the control of the landlord. But um, it, it has to be in somewhat immediate 
breach of the actual property itself. If it happens across down the street or you know across the street, um, there can be some some room uh, uh, to defend those those negligence claims. So um, it's got to be somewhat near to the the property itself. Yeah, in Benningfield, I think it was some one of the dissents. Uh, one of the things the things they were joking about is not a joke, but a how about near close to relative concepts. You know, what if it's three houses down, what if it's four yeah. houses down? I so think in Benning, Benningfield, it happened like across the street, cartilage or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and and the point here is, the the idea behind this is to hold. You know, we didn't spend a lot of time on landlords, but to hold the landlord responsible for that which is foreseeable and that which is under his or her control. Obviously, the landlord's property and then places un about, on or about, like adjacent to his or her property would be under landlord's control. Now, in fairness, if you put your dog in your car and you drive 20 miles away to, say, Cherokee Park, and you're walking your dog in Cherokee Park and the dog bites somebody, it, that really has nothing to do with the landlord. Right. landlord doesn't have any say over who gets to go to Cherokee Park. So the point of this is, again... What can the landlord reasonably foresee and what can the landlord reasonably control? The landlord can reasonably control that which happens on or about his or her property, not what happens at Cherokee Park or uh, you know Yosemite or anywhere else. So that's why it says on or about. And much ink has been spilled on how far or about is. My two cents, to me, they should clear it up and just say, if the aggressive behavior began on or about the property, if a dog starts in its yard, the yard owned by the landlord, and chases somebody, to me the attack began at the point of the chase, not seven houses down where the dog might have caught the person. Mm -hmm. But that's that's my two cents on that. So, yeah. but so on or about the landlord area under control of the landlord. Right. Right. And I would add to it just any that the landlord failed to take reasonable steps, although you don't always find that listed in all the cases, but there's a reasonability and a foreseeability really inherent throughout all negligences. You know, was the landlord reasonable? Did the landlord, to me, the law in this and any area um, discourages and should discourage absenteeism. You know, you, you, you can't just say, well, I, I had no idea what was going on at my property. You shouldn't be allowed to do that, at least. They're, the landlord ought to take reasonable steps. If I were if I were representing a landlord, if I were in-house counsel for a landlord, I would advise them to take reasonable steps to make sure that either the, the, A, there weren't dogs on the property, or B, if they were, they weren't, um, they, they didn't have any dangerous uh, propensities. Yeah, so those are the two, really three, but, but two mainly, um, the two elements uh, that we have to prove against uh, claims for negligence against the landlord, to, to keep the landlord on the hook for a tenant owner's dog. Um, so it's a little easier uh, for landlords to get to, to not be held liable in these type of suits. Um, it's not the end game, you know, it really just depends on the facts of each individual case. So we always do our best to, to make sure we're focusing on every possible avenue of, of recovery for our clients. Um, and, and making sure we're keeping everybody in um, to the extent we can and uh, uh, within the facts of our case. So, Let's talk about damages. Um, what are the damages that somebody can recover in an animal attack? 
Um, they're pretty similar to, to most other negligence cases um, or injury cases. So your medical bills, any medical uh, bills that, that you incurred as a result of, of, of your treatment for the injuries caused by the animal, um, any lost wages if you've missed work because of your injuries, um, you're able to recoup your lost wages, and then that good old pain and suffering. So that's <laughs> that's one uh, where we, you know, it's it's can be difficult to, to quantify in some uh, cases, um, but the law allows you to recover for your pain and suffering, emotional and physical uh, stress over the injuries and the recovery and all, and all that kind of stuff. I found in my practice, if you agree, dog bite injuries tend to be different than car wreck injury, slip and fall injury, premises liability injury. Yeah, our podcast has a fan. Somebody's talking loud and loud. <laughs> um, premises liability injury, you know, slip and fall injury, car wreck injury, and the like, in that some of these injuries can be longer lasting in a in a cosmetic way. I don't mean cosmetic in a trivial way, but you know, scars, especially visible ones, um, those can really devastate somebody. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we are, you know, whether we like to admit it or not, we are in many ways a, a, an appearance-driven society, and um, there, there are real consequences, uh, very serious ones, to some of these cosmetic injuries or appearance injuries. And once again, this is where good lawyers who deal in these types of cases know how to pursue this type of claim. Right. Also, there, there can be, you know, um, in, a, in not all, but in a lot of, of dog biter attack injuries, there is some sort of um, wound or, you know, like a, a flesh wound or something like that. So in a lot of cases, the medical bills um, can be somewhat deceptively low right. in that, you know, you've got a, you've got a big cut or a big, you know, uh, bite wound that maybe you need stitches and, you just need time to heal. There's not a whole lot of, of treatment, in it, which is kind of um, contrasted with like a car wreck injury um, where, you know, maybe you go to the hospital and you have a follow-up family care doctor and then you have maybe some physical therapy, some, you know, you have ongoing treatment. Um, a lot of the time with dog bite injuries, there's just not a whole lot of treatment to, to do. You just kind of have to sit and wait for things to heal and see kind of how the, if there's any scarring and how that kind of, uh, plays out. So, um, you know, uh, we talk about a lot about the, the value of cases is usually driven by the medical bills, which can be a little trickier in a dog bite case where, um, you know, you just don't have a whole lot of medical bills. Cause like I said, there's not a whole lot of treatment to, to obtain. So, um, we try our best. Uh, I think, we, I think we do a good job. I think we have good success for our clients in recovering, you know, uh, uh the appropriate amount of pain and suffering, that might not be reflected in the amount of medical bills. That's a great point. And I think it segues into the last thing we want to talk about is um, what do you do? Or just if you, what, what do you do in, this, in the moment where you're attacked by, right after you're attacked by a dog? Um, just like last, last week, last podcast, number one, call 911. Um, the most important thing, more, far more important than your legal case uh, is your medical um, needs, obviously. So call 911. Get the cops there, get an ambulance there if needed. Uh, it's very important you seek medical treatment immediately. You'll need a doctor to in, uh, examine and see if you need any kind of shots. You know, just did a great job earlier with the tetanus blog at moricollarsmith.com. Check that out. Uh, but really, it, your doctor can advise you there. It's also important to get the police involved because 
you know, we talked last week about we were disappointed that we were hearing stories about cops maybe not showing up to some accident scenes. In my experience, the police do a very good job on showing up to dog bite animal attacks, and that's important for a lot of reasons. One, it helps to establish ownership of the dog. You know, the police can go in, you know, who owns this dog? Who's taking responsibility for it? Two, the police can then, in animal control, can assist in finding out, well, has this animal had its shots? Has it been vaccinated against the rabies and the like? Which is information you'll need for your health. And three, animal control can then get involved and find out, you know, is this owner or landlord or whatnot doing what they need to be doing? And if not, there are criminal penalties involved, citations and fines and, and the like that the owner may have to pay. I will tell you as a civil lawyer, it helps your case if the person has to go to court and admit to ownership of the dog. But far more importantly, the societal benefit of this is the owner of the dog then has to take some responsibility and say, yes, it's my dog. No, it shouldn't be out biting people. You know, I'm, I'm going to fence it in better. Or I'm going to, you know, so on and so forth. So get animal control and the police out there. Call 911, file a report, follow up, make sure that's done. Uh, in my experience here in Jefferson County, at least, the, the animal control does a good job of that. And uh, go to the doctor, get checked out. Don't, don't just, uh, don't sit on your rights and don't sit on your health. Make sure you get checked out. Yeah, and I will say, I, I, some of the criminal penalties um, uh, for dog owners are a little uh, lighter, I would say, um, like diet criminal <laughs> charges. Um, some okay. people and some people are have you know not, you know when your dog a dog bites you, that's you're upset, especially you know if there's significant injury and uh, sometimes the penalties is usually a fine or something, but. So the criminal penalty is not like anybody's necessarily probably going to jail over this. They probably will have to show up uh, and admit ownership and probably pay a fine and have some other restrictions placed on the dog, you know, like Doug said. But the most important, so we, as your dog bite lawyers, we make sure that the criminal charges are followed through with um, to the extent we can participate in that. Um, but the, the main, and the main point of that is really just to secure the uh, ownership of the dog because sometime later, maybe once a civil suit is filed, the dog owner, uh, you know, I'm air quoting owner would say, oh no, that's not my dog. I don't, that's somebody else's dog. I have no idea who, whose dog that is. So uh, if there's a criminal, criminal charges in a criminal case that where they have not raised the defense of not being the owner, well, then they can't go in the civil case and say, well, that, that wasn't my dog. So that's the important part. While we don't practice, Doug used to practice criminal law, but we don't really do that now in our, in our firm. Um, but we do that criminal part can be uh, relevant and very important to the civil case against a dog owner. Exactly right. Well, uh, Jess, you're the host. What do you think? You think we helped anybody here today? Yeah, it's great. I, I do want to say that this also applies to children. So yes, you know, uh, you know, children get bit by dogs all the time. So they're bothering the dog, whatever. Um, so you know, if you're a child or something gets bit as well, you know this this all applies to to them as well. Thank you. I I, I forgot. This is really important. Dog bites have a one year statute of limitations. Okay, one year. You have one year from the day of the bite. One year to file a lawsuit, or else you lose your claim. Now, that's not true with children. Children have longer. Uh, by children, I mean if you're under eighteen, you have up until your eighteenth or 18th birthday. A year, a year from, from 18th birthday. Excuse me. Thank you. A year from your 18th birthday. However, this is this is huge. 
don't sit on this. Don't sit on this. You, you will not, your memories fade. The, the credibility of what you're saying um, fades to people, even if it's 100% true. It's, very, it's so important. Jess is right. Thank you. It's so important, especially with kids. Get them to the pediatrician. Get them checked out. File a police report, animal control. Call a lawyer. Obviously, we'd like you to call Maury Collier-Smith. If you don't call us, call someone. Call a lawyer. Pursue this. Make sure that your child's rights are being protected here because, you know, there could be some money there down the road for your son or your daughter, and, and that's important. He or she has every right to be compensated if attacked by an animal. So make, make sure you do follow up on that. For adults, one-year statute of limitations. you, you got to move on this. Can't sit on it. Yeah. And I would just throw into that, make sure you're documenting your injuries. Take pictures, yes. especially if yes. there's if it's a, a, a wound-type situation and there's scarring involved. Make sure you're taking pictures so you can document how that's changing. And, you know, the some people are that are, are very visible even months, years later. So uh, make sure you're documenting your injuries. That's a fantastic point. Make sure you're taking photos. Make sure you're taking photos. That's huge. The photos are, say, a picture worth a thousand words. Make sure you're taking photos. Anything else we leave out? No, I think that's great. I think, think uh, let's do our fun fact. Okay. Got a fun fact for us? I do. Uh, well, the uh, the inspiration for this fun fact uh, comes from a trip I took with my kids to Great Wolf Lodge. They had a trivia contest there, and I missed this question. And I looked it up because I was just incredible. I couldn't, well, I don't want to spoil it. According to a 2020 Rover survey, what percent of dog owners will dress up their dogs for Halloween? Well, I know the answer now, but uh, my first answer before knowing the, the answer, <laughs> sorry, would theater uh, of the mind. We talk about what the answer should be is a hundred percent because if you have a dog and you're not dressing up for Why? Halloween, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? Your dog deserves <laughs> to be dressed up. So, while I know this is not correct, it should be one hundred percent. The the Grove Lodge one had a multiple choice, and I remember all the numbers were, but the A, the low one, was ten percent. I put ten percent. I, I literally thought it would be 10% or la fewer, less. I could not believe. The answer, believe it or not, 66%, 66% of people will dress their dogs up for Halloween. See, that seems low to me. <laughs> Why would you not? I mean, what? I don't understand a person that would not dress up their dog. The dog doesn't want to wear an outfit. Some dogs like no, it. No, did they tell you this? Yeah, oh. Penny. Penny told me she we she. Listen, it's February and she already has a Halloween costume. Oh my god, <laughs> Penny, you want her outfit? <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah, you're right. No, most dogs hate it, but that's okay. That's all right. It was. It's, <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's it's, okay. It's, you admitted it. You you admitted it. Most dogs hate it. Well, yeah, there you go. I will say our other dog. He's not a fan. He'll do it, but he he is oh, not a fan. God. But. You know, it's all for the pictures. Do it for the gram. Yeah. <laughs> 66%. That's two-thirds. And how much uh, of revenue did you say that Half a billion dollars. Yeah, Half a billion dollars will be spent this year in America on addressing your pet up for Halloween. Uh, well, if you hey, just, if you if the if the pets themselves could talk, I'm sorry. They don't want to dress up, especially <laughs> If they got treats, maybe they would. No, they, it's no, Same no. situation as, you know, a trick-or-treating. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I, well, I, I dissent. I dissent. But, uh, all right, well, that's our fun fact slash trivia question for this week. Yeah. Uh, Jess, anything else? No, nope. great job, guys. 
Very informative. Thank you. Check out that yeah. Maury Collier-Smith blog. Just does a real good job. That tetanus uh, information, very helpful. There's going to be more there in the future. Car wrecks, uh, personal injury, uh, premises liability, slip and fall. Motorcycle wrecks can be big. We're talking a lot about that. Motorcycle wrecks down the road, uh, dog bites, etc. So. Yeah. Yeah, we got a lot of fun stuff coming up. So I hope this number episode number two was even more least boring. I'm going to figure out a good way to say that. I, this is, every time, this is the second time, it's, it's not good. But uh, we're getting even more uh, more fun as, as episodes go on. Someone very close to me said I, I said um too often in the first one. So I, <laughs> I, I hope I did a better job in this one. We'll see.